and identity caused by the Corinthian sexual mores all around them. And the Corinthian hypersexualized culture turns out to have been quite like ours. We saw last week the disastrous effect that that had had and that it has on us today. Well, this week we're looking at what happens when things go wrong and the extraordinary hope that Christ offers us in the midst of that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the light of the world, exposing what's wrong and guiding us towards healing, life and truth. Help us to drop our barriers to you and to hear what you have to say. Show us the hope that you offer and give us courage to respond because you love us and you want to bless us and because your power enables us to live in your blessing now and forever. Well, I've got some difficult things to talk about today. And the problem is that I suspect that uh, most of you will already have made your mind up one way or the other before I begin. So I just want to go back a bit first. 60 years ago, our values were mainly focused outside ourselves in our community. The thing was good if it strengthened community. But our instincts have changed. Now we think that even if just one person is suffering, treated unfairly or oppressed, that's worse than tearing the fabric of community which lets many more people live in larger freedoms, equalities and mutual care. This shift has got embedded in the West, so now we think this is the only moral way to see the world. But it isn't. There are far more people across the world, as well as many in the West, who still think in community terms. Who has the moral high ground here? Well, as a Christian, if I want to know where the moral high ground is, I must ask where Jesus is standing, not where I'm standing. So let's look at his approach. Here he is, confronted by an issue of sexual morality. It's the same reason we heard last week, but it didn't speak about it last week, so I'm taking the opportunity to do so this week. Our first reading. This is not the reading on the week's sheet. I'm reading from John 8, verses 1 to 11, I hope. Yes? Good. That's a comfort. So, John 8, verses 1 to 11. When Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, at dawn he appeared again in the... Te- Sorry, I'll start that again because that was nonsense. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. 
Again, he stooped down and wrote on, on the ground. At that, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Well, listening to that reading, we may think that Jesus agrees with the modern perspective. Here he is protecting and liberating the free-spirited individual from oppressive orthodoxy. Of course, that's not what Jesus is doing at all. Jesus knows that this is a trap. These men aren't concerned about the women. They're concerned with trying to find a way to trap Jesus and to accuse him. But Jesus is concerned about the woman. He's going to deal with their trap, and he'll also deal with her need. But he's concerned about more than that too. He's concerned about one woman and a group of men, all of whose choices have driven them far from their Heavenly Father. When he refuses to condemn the woman, Jesus is caring for the woman, yes, and he's protecting her from violence. All of that's contained in his first words to her. Neither do I condemn you. But he also recognizes that she is a woman who has chosen to betray her husband and her children, to undermine her community, and to spit in the face of her God. So he gently commands her, go and leave your life of sin. For Jesus, the moral high ground isn't just about the individual or about the community. It's found by compassionately and humbly bringing both together. Now that is a real challenge. And it's a challenge that we avoid if we just respond from emotional instinct in one of these ways or the other. The sexual revolution of the last 60 years, this revolution of personal freedom, has seemed very attractive to many people and becomes more attractive to each new generation. And lots of people now think that it's obvious that we should allow anyone to pursue any kind of sexual relationship which appears appropriate to them. However, there is a darker underside to this revolution. It hasn't delivered what it's promised. People think they'll be rescued from the unhappiness inflicted on them by society, but instead they often find themselves plunged in even deeper inner unhappiness. The retreat from marriage has led to mounting isolation and loneliness. And those sucked into this freedom find they do not have the strength inside them to break free. By now, I hope that we will be more ready for Paul's critique of the sexual permissiveness of his own day. It will help you to follow in the Bible, it's page 1147, and to keep the Bible open after the reading as well. And just remember as you listen that Paul is talking to the church. Page 1147. Thank you.
Mike's already told you it's 1147, starting at verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So what does Paul say is the basic problem here? You'll find it right in the middle in verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, you might be thinking, well, I'd rather not be in the kingdom of God at all if I have to give up my personal freedom and live by these outdated rules. But that's not it at all. For St. Paul, the kingdom of God is everything he can think of which is lovely and beautiful and noble and excellent and worthy of praise. It's the deepest, most enduring inner peace and outer creativity. It's a service which is perfect freedom. For Paul, even the worst suffering cannot be compared to the eternal joy and peace of God's kingdom. And the thing is, we're not thrown out of this kingdom, but we can rule ourselves out. If you insist on self-fulfillment over and above the needs of others, and worshipping anything you like, you're not going to feel comfortable, let's face it, spending eternity with a God who abhors selfishness and knows the secrets of every heart. So Paul says, do not be deceived. <clears throat> Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, 
nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So sin is serious. 1 Corinthians, the whole epistle, shows us a church that's riddled with sin. People are involved in prostitutes, they're getting drunk at communion, people are worshipping idols in temples of other religions. Last week we heard about incest with a stepmother. This week church members are swindling one another and taking each other to court. It's a great community. The Corinthians have been carrying on with all of this as if their lifestyles have no consequences. But Paul pulls them up sharply. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? The Corinthians have fallen into a classic trap. They've said to themselves, well, like the woman caught in adultery, Jesus has forgiven us. So surely that means we can do whatever we like. We're saved, we're forgiven, and if necessary, Jesus will forgive us again. Paul responds to them, absolutely not. Sin has terrible consequences for you and for your future. Verse 9, do you not know the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? If you choose to do your own thing and reject Jesus as king, you also reject his kingdom. You make yourself not one of his subjects and you forfeit your inheritance. Bad choice. So, verses 9 to 10, Paul highlights a number of sins which, when committed repeatedly, define who we are rather than being defined by Christ's kingship. There are 10 in total. Um, Actually, the reading that you heard dropped one of them, but in your Bibles you've got 10. They fall into two main categories. Sexual sins, on the one hand, and financial sins, on the other. So, under sexual sins, we've got the sexually immoral, like the man committing incest in chapter 5. We've got adulterers, people who are sleeping with someone, not their wife or husband. We've got male prostitutes working in the temples of Corinth. And fifth on Paul's list, we have homosexual offenders, or in the Greek, more literally, those who actively practice homosexual sex. I want to pause a moment here because I know that this is a sensitive topic. It's sensitive because it's splitting families and congregations, and indeed the Church of England, General Synod, has been struggling with this for years. And it's sensitive because many of us find ourselves struggling to discover our own identity amidst the confusions of our feelings and the conflicting pressures around us. So here are a few brief observations about this. Firstly, I know that this is a really tough issue. It touches on one of the most personal things about us, our sexuality. Many here will have friends and family and people you love who would describe themselves as gay. Or it may be an issue that you face personally yourself. I hope that you will hear from me words that will be like Jesus' response to that woman. Words which are very, very caring, but also very truthful. Secondly, this issue is actually about our identity. The sexual revolution that I was talking about before tells us we base our identity on how we feel. But of course, feelings change. It's hard enough being a child, but now we're encouraged as a child to take lifelong decisions about our sexual identity when we're far too young to know ourselves. That is tough. But worst of all, we're told that 
our identity, formed by our changeable sexual feelings, is fundamental to us. They define who we are. So we're caught in a double jeopardy. We're confused about who we should be, and we're trapped in who we've become. But Paul says our identity can be totally changed by submitting to Jesus as our king. We become someone new. As Jesus says, we can be born over again. Our identity isn't determined by our sexual feelings or by our past choices, but by Jesus' choice for us. Thirdly, there's been a cultural shift, we know that, which now says that whatever two consenting adults do in private is their own business, and no one can judge them. However, we know that what two consenting adults do in private has a massive impact on other people. And Paul says it has a massive impact on them too. Do we want to be in the kingdom of God? If so, rather than listening to our culture, we need to listen to what God is saying. Fourthly, the Bible is really clear on this. Sex is a gift given by God to be used in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. Anything outside that isn't God's intention for the gift. And that includes sex before marriage, it includes adultery, and it includes homosexual sex. God's best for us is monogamous, heterosexual sex. Jesus reckons that, recognizes that we often get into trouble. We heard that today. And we need forgiveness. But he also tells us we need to leave behind us sinful ways of living. And of course, today's sermon isn't the end of the story. It's not the last word. We won't finish this today. In two and three weeks' time, we're going to be looking at how we can flourish to live in all the richness of God's kingdom, whether we're married or we're single. Fifthly, struggles in this area are often a sign of a heart genuinely seeking after God. This is a fallen world in which we live and we are fallen people and it touches every part of our life, including our sexual identity. Handling that can be at great personal cost to ourselves. But take courage. The woman caught in adultery and dragged before Jesus found to her astonishment that Jesus was much kinder and more forgiving than her accusers. But he did also challenge her, her behavior and her relationships. Jesus does welcome, protect and forgive us, but he doesn't accept just any behavior. He urges us to change. Okay, I've tried not to be glib or to speak lightly. If you are struggling with anything in these areas, then please do come and find me afterwards or later, or Adam or Jit or Ruth or another member of the staff. Finally, I just want to say, this is not the only sin. Listening to the news, it might seem to you that this is the only sin that the church cares about and the only sin it talks about. It's not true. The church talks about other sin as well, but this is the only sin that the paper is interested in the church talking about. That's a little different. <laughs> Jesus tells, tells us we have no right to condemn others for their struggles while ignoring our own. And Paul comes up with six other habitual sins 
besides sexual ones, which also redefine us away from Christ's character and kingdom. For instance, financial sins. Paul lists, Paul's list mentions three of them, the greedy, the thieves, and the swindlers. Some things never change, do they? The desire for money and the power it gives is as much of a problem today as it ever has been. The greedy, we know what greedy people are, what they look like, but do we recognize ourselves in that description? Thieves. Well, we know who they are. They're people who steal from us, who break into our houses and take away our grandfather clocks. But do we recognize the possibility amongst thieves of those who borrow from other people? Swindlers. Well, con men, of course. But do we also include ramping up our expenses, cooking the books, dishonesty with the tax man? Paul's list isn't exhaustive. It's aimed at the Christian Corinthian church and the struggles that they were having then. What would Paul include today in a modern list for the Christians at St. Jude's, for instance? Under the sexual category, would he include pornography? Almost certainly. What else? Under the financial category, would he include gambling? Certainly. Excess consumerism? Possibly. You can identify others for yourself. St. Peter says, whatever overcomes a person, by that he is enslaved. And Paul includes in that gluttony and drunkenness. Ask yourself, is there anything in my life that I can't help doing, even though I know it isn't what Jesus wants? Particular trains of thought, secret activities. I've tried to stop, but I just can't. Well, there's great news. In our passage, Paul now moves on to the possibility of change and freedom from these activities. Paul's big word for this is sanctification. And there are two parts to sanctification, changing our identity and changing our character. So let's turn the page. Verse 11. According to the modern freedom narrative that I was talking about, we expect Paul to say, this is what you are, so change your ways and reinvent yourself. But instead he says, and this is what some of you were. How can he say this when such great sin is still going on amongst the Corinthian church? Is Paul contradicting himself? Well, verse 11b makes it worse. He says they've already been made pure using three different baptism methods. They were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified. How can this be? Washed, a household image, filth is removed by washing with water. Sanctified, a religious image, a special vessel, holy and pure and clean, dedicated to worship. Justified, a legal image, a guilty person declared not guilty. But the Corinthians seem anything but washed and sanctified and justified. So what's going on? Well, the answer to this gives us the key to how God seeks to transform us and destroy sin in our lives. We have to become what he has already made us. In their baptism, and we have a baptism in the next service, believing in Christ, God gives us this new identity. We are washed, sanctified, and justified. So the, the Christian life that follows is a life of becoming this, what has happened in baptism. 
So in the, pre- the end of the previous chapter, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Well, our culture and most other religions say, become a better person by your own effort and power. But the Christian faith says, allow Jesus to make you into the person you already are by removing anything that's not of your true identity. I guess some of you will have been to Florence, as I have, and seen Michelangelo's world-famous statue of David. Many still think it the greatest sculpture ever made. Michelangelo was asked how he'd created it to such a degree of perfection, and his reply was simple, you may know it. The sculpture of David had always been in that block of marble, and all he had to do was to chip away everything that wasn't David, and there it would be left the perfect sculpture. What God does in his sanctifying work is to chisel off what's not our real identity. Sometimes it takes hard hammer blows, but God does that in love. Until what remains is who we really are through coming to Christ and his salvation. We are washed, sanctified, justified. Paul then moves on in this sentence to tell us how God does this transforming work, the tools that he wields. So, verse 11c, all of this is done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So Paul's mentioning a double work, past and present. There's the past work in the name of the Lord Jesus. The power of Jesus' name is primarily what he did at the cross, destroying the power of sin through forgiveness. The Apostle John says, the blood of Jesus on the cross, God's Son, purifies us from all sin. God has done that in the past through Jesus. Then there's the present work by the Spirit of God. One of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to take what God has done and to powerfully apply it to our own lives here and now. The Spirit is living in us, transforming us from the inside out. I wonder if you remember Hercules, the Greek hero. Perhaps you saw the Disney film uh, with yours or someone else's children. So so, um, Hercules is set 12 impossible tasks. Fortunately, not before breakfast. (laughs) Number five, in a single day, he has to clean the stables, housing all the king's horses and all the king's cattle, which hasn't been cleaned for 30 years, and is a stinking, festering, dung-filled place. Just seems an impossible change, challenge. But Hercules succeeds by diverting two nearby rivers to flow through the stables, to wash away all that filth of decades in an instant in a mighty torrent of water. And this is what God's Spirit does in us. A torrent of water, a mighty river, washing away the accumulated muck and filth of decades. So how can we do this practically? How can we ask God by his spirit to come and change us and set us free from the habitual sins that define us? Well, we have to partner God in this. Because, as they say, he never does anything within us without us. So I just offer you three R's to take away and to use. Firstly, repent. Repent of the sin, the acts of rebellion against King Jesus, choosing a new way of living. Receive. 
Receive your new identity. I am washed, sanctified, and justified. And three, request. Request the power of the Holy Spirit to come and break the power of sin, washing it all away. Repent, receive, request. I think I'd better leave the last word to Jesus. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin.